We are, we are trying to understand in a comprehensive, almost exhaustive way, uh, all the reasons why, or all, at least all the reasons that we can find why there has been such an emphasis on Torah study in Jewish life. Uh, we know, and we brought examples of it, and I'm saying this is probably axiomatic, everyone knows this, self-evident, that Jews are obsessed with Torah study. Not only are Jews obsessed with Judaism, with Israel, with mitzvahs, we're obsessed with Torah study itself, just onto its own. And the question that we posed uh, a couple of months back when we started this was why? You know, why are we so obsessed and what does it do for us? And how does it impact our lives? And how does it impact the lives of the people around us? And how does it change the world? And what kind of gives it this importance, this primacy that makes it at the top of our food chain? Uh, and we have found many, many very interesting reasons. And today we have some, you know, some, some more really fascinating and dramatic, insightful uh, reasons why we study Torah and how it impacts us, not only us, but the people around us. So I want to start off with a, with a statement of the Talmud. Perhaps you've heard of it. Perhaps you've heard of something which is kind of a corollary or parallel to this idea. And that's the idea of a 6,000-year world. We know in the Jewish calendar, which starts from Adam, we're about year 5776, uh, thus giving us about 200, 224 years until uh, we reach this magical number 6,000. Now, this all comes from a statement in the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin. I believe it's page 99a or 97a, I don't remember exactly. And it says as follows, the world is 6,000 years. 2,000 years Tohu, 2,000 years Torah, and 2,000 years Mashiach. Now, Tohu, that's the word that I'm sure people don't know what it means. It means chaos. 2,000 years of chaos, 2,000 years of Torah, and 2,000 years of Mashiach. Right? That, you know, that's um, essentially the, the core, the crux of, uh, of that Talmudic teaching. Uh, and then the Gemara goes on to talk about well, what happens after 6,000 years and that it's kind of a little bit a, a different discussion we'll have maybe some other time. Well, we're in the last 2,000 years and Mashiach hasn't come yet. <laughs> well, okay. Well, that, that, well, well, okay. Well, well, what's... Well, you know, that's a good question, Ed, and we'll have to kind of understand for what, what does this mean? You know, what does this mean? You're asking a kind of very narrow, specific question. I want to ask a very broad question. What is this 6,000 years? What is this breakdown of three separate epochs? It's right? three separate 2,000-year chunks. What does it mean, tohu? What does it mean, chaos? Two thousand years of chaos. What does it mean, Torah? Like, what do these things even? What does Mashiach even mean? I always thought Mashiach was some hero coming on a donkey who's going to save the people. All right, that's what I thought. That's that's one man, right? That's one idea. That's one time period. What is this two thousand year period? Uh, so to understand this teaching, well, uh, and to analyze this, we see a a, a picture, a snapshot of this world's history. And if you've heard the term tikkun olam, which has been widely used and unfortunately uh, uh, you know, has been distorted what it means, this is the Talmud that talks about tikkun olam. We start off with a chaotic world and we end with a messianic world. Right? And that's a transformation, it's a transition right, from being broken to being fixed. And, and our job as a nation is to fix, tikkun olam, fix the world. 6,000 years, this is a project. We start off with chaos, we transition into Torah, and then obviously we culminate with the idea of Mashiach. Now, the core idea, right, the, 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 the theme that's strung through these 6,000 years is the core idea of existence, and that's God. And this world is a world which, at least at the beginning, the idea of God was unknown. There's chaos. There's chaos and there's distortion because God withdrew himself from the world. Thus, the one fundamental principle, that the only truth in the world, the only truth in all of existence, was missing. This world was in utter chaos. And of course comes along Abraham and changes everything. And by the way, when was Abraham born in this uh, 6,000 year continuum? He's born in year... 243. No. 
1948. All the way at the end of the chaos. That's which is a nice, easy number to remember, right? All the way at the end of chaos, we have this emergence of a man who, and an ideal and a mission and a family and a tribe and ultimately a nation that is going to totally turn this upside down, totally reverse it. And that's Abraham. And by the way, the Talmud tells us that Abraham studied Torah. And then an additional Talmud tells us that Abraham studied Torah at the age of 52. Which we have, at the age of 52, Abraham started studying Torah. Torah that has not been given to us yet. That's right. Abraham had access to the Torah beforehand. Right? Thus we find the idea of a transition. There's a global transition, a shift, where the world was no longer barren. The darkness was no longer enshrouding everything. There was this one flicker, this one hope for the world, for this existence to change everything. Suddenly the darkness was, was pierced by a little bit of light. What about Shem Okay, so what's different, with the, that's a good question. The difference between Abraham and Shem Ever is that Abraham achieved what he achieved on his own. It wasn't a tradition from, from Adam to, all the way to Noah, etc. Abraham is transformational. That's why he, he's the one who begins this new movement because he's the one who achieves that on his own. Right? And he's in a sea of paganism and emerges from all that chaos, Abraham. When you say that Abraham was studying Torah, and a lot of our sages were studying Torah before we had the written Torah, what are we actually studying? Well, they're studying everything. Um, but the question is how? No, because yes. you won't know about it. In Moses, okay, you okay, that's a good question. That's a good question. That's a good question. That's true. Um, so uh, the Torah, remember the Torah, like we, we, we've spoken about this numerous times, the Torah is more than just a book, right? The right. book is a, is a certain realm of Torah, mm-hmm. but the Torah is God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is just existed before it was given to us in this current iteration. Right? My brother just mentioned, there's, there's Pshat, there's Remesh, there's So, the Chachma, there's that, all those things. What, so which one's Torah? Well, they're all Torah. Well, so which one is it? The answer is that it's, it's all of them. At any point in time, we're accessing one layer, one phase, you know, one realm of it, and maybe we can ignore the rest of them. And you know, you see kids who read the, you read the parsha. Ah, I did the parsha. Really? Did you plumb all the way to the depths? Of course not. So Abraham was able to access the Torah because remember, Abraham's a prophet, right. and Abraham is someone who was always also able to access his soul in which the Torah was already programmed, and therefore Abraham was able to achieve Torah before it was given to us by Moses in its current, in, 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 its, in, its, in its iteration that we have now. But he was able to achieve, indeed, everything. But, but you're right. Abraham started. This is the, Abraham is all the way at the beginning of the transition, right? Abraham ends a certain period. And by the way, on the year 2001, was there still paganism? Of course. But it was no longer darkness and chaos. The path of bringing God into this world is already we can already kind of make it out, especially in hindsight, how it's going to how it's going to go how we're going to go about doing that. Now, the next thousand years is Torah. Like I said, Abraham had Torah, but it's a it's I don't want to call it a primitive form of Torah, but I would say it's it's a different kind of Torah. It's not the Torah that we have, right? Uh, but throughout that period, what, what happens throughout the next two thousand years? Abraham becomes not just Abraham's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the twelve tribes, and ultimately, it's a whole—it's a whole family. And it's a, it's a, and it culminates into a nation. And what makes our nation a nation? The fact that we have a special relationship with the Almighty, and we have a Torah, which is a guidebook, to help us achieve what? To help us achieve what Abraham began. The idea of Tikkun Olam, and the reason why our nation is so bound by that ideal is because that's the reason why we're here. The Almighty tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Why? Is it just to have a nice nation? No! It's because our nation is going to be the one that's going to continue and ultimately bring to completion what Abraham began. Years and years and decades and obviously now it's millennia uh, prior. And how do we do that? With the Torah. The Torah is the tool that the Almighty gives to us, to the Jewish people, and not to everyone else. Do you know why? Because the Torah is something that we need because we're the ones who are going to continue and ultimately complete what Abraham began. 
And thus we have a period of roughly 2,000 years where the entire world was still pagan. But our nation was growing. Our nation was developing. Our Torah was flourishing. And we are becoming a juggernaut, a a powerhouse, a nation that is preparing to change not only ourselves, but the entire world. Fast forward to the last 2,000 years. Remember, we're 0.2% of the world's population. The entire world needs to recognize God. It's not just us. We're the harbingers. We're the emissaries. We're at the forefront of the mission. We have outsized responsibilities to affect and bring about that change. But it's not just about us. Mashiach is, uh, the idea of Mashiach is where the idea of God goes from being an idea that Abraham had to a nation, ultimately to the entire world. And indeed, if you look back at history, and by the way, the history happened after the Talmud already said this, now we live in a time where the vast majority of the world already believes in some form of monotheism. And even people that say, oh, I'm not a big believer, or I don't believe so much, if you were to entertain the idea of a god, it would certainly look very similar, at least, to the Jewish idea. And in fact, by the way, what do we have? We have the emergence of two other religions. And where do those religions come from? They come from Abraham. Abraham's mission is going to be fulfilled primarily, completed primarily by us, but also by his you know, other offshoots in the form of Ishmael and, and Islam, and Esav, Esau, and Christianity. And they're going to help us in achieving mass dissemination, universal ubiquity of these ideas. And you know what? Once the world already knows about that, all we need to do is tweak it. This is the point that the Ramba, Maimonides, writes. He says, the role that the other religions play in this world view is that they achieve universal understanding, recognition of the idea, the core idea that Abraham taught us. And once we have a universal understanding, at least, of these ideas, the the, the final blow, the final punchline, the idea of Mashiach in its completion, is where we kind of adjust that. We, we, we calibrate that idea. We tweak it. You know, we tinker. We just fix it just a little bit. And then we have a world that brings uh, its completion. So to answer your question, Ed, we don't have Mashiach yet, but we have Messianism in the form... Messianism is a dangerous word, right? But the idea of... Of, of God being ever-present in the world, of fulfilling what Abraham began, well, it's, we're not quite there, but we're very close. We have a world where everyone, almost everyone accepts some variety or some version of this idea. And even people that question it, you know, or, or they have hesitations about it, their hesitations uh, uh, about, our, uh, about a, the Abrahamic principle their hesitations are indeed evidence to the fact that this idea has gained uh, mainstream and wide, you know, widespread acceptance, yeah, right? Except in the Christian world, especially in Europe, it's becoming more and more accepted. Yeah, okay, but the question is, like, you know, you look at a 2,000-year trend, not a 20-year trend. Right? Yeah, it's very easy. And people, you know what, people would say that in the 16th and 17th centuries, they would make the same argument that you're making. Right? We're looking at a bit, very, very, this is a very big picture. This is one line, I'll get to you in a second, uh, um, Malka. This is one line that looks at all of this you know, human history in this, in, you know, in this world. In the, what's the whole big picture? Yeah, of course, you could say, well, you know, there's a five-year, ten-year trend, and, you know, fine. You know. Uh, and all, the more, all the more so you know, does that demonstrate that uh, there's room for tinkering. Right, because what you would have said to me twenty years ago is that, "Whoa, what do you mean? Europe is so ardently Christian; they're never going to accept our tinkering." Right? I'll say, "Well, oh, okay. Well, now they're less Christian, so the tinkering is maybe ripe." And by the way, they're less Christian, becoming more Muslim. Okay, well then, it's tinkering is even easier then. Um, and then, well, what else do we have? Very, very recently, we have the Jews going back to Israel. 
which is a historical phenomena that is unprecedented. It's never happened before. Well, it actually has happened before with us when we went back to Israel the first time. But it doesn't happen. It's a historical anomaly. It doesn't happen when a nation gets exiled from its land and comes back, you know, even decades later, much less 2,000 years later. And lo and behold, it's dramatically, almost overnight, we have 6 million Jews living in Israel. It's unbelievable. If I told you this 200 years ago, you would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh in my face and tell me I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a doofus. You open the Torah and say, well, at the end game, we're going to go back to Israel. And you'll say, well, yeah, Israel's still very secular. Yeah, okay, fine. But they actually just recently did a, a study that looked at the religious leanings of Israeli Jews versus Jews in the diaspora. And we find that the Jews in Israel are dramatically closer to Judaism, or at least the traditional understanding of Judaism, than the Jews living in the United States. So we see that it's kind of coming together. Yeah, and you look at the big picture, it's coming together. Well, of course, what do you mean? There's terrorism and there's, you know, there's the autonomy is bad. Yeah, of course, you know. But let's look big picture. In big picture, we see over 2,000 years, change and, and maneuverings and, and, and historical shifts and trends that really kind of are bringing towards what we talk about in the day of Mashiach. When Hashem told Abraham that from him a big nation was going to come, did he, did Abraham know that it came, it was going to come from Isaac, not from Ishmael? So there's another verse. It there's... seems like Ishmael is. Okay, so two, so two, two, two points. Two points. Point number one is that if you read a little further, it says, when, when Abraham is, is, is compelled by his wife and ultimately by the Almighty to kick away Hagar and, his, and, his, and her son, the Almighty tells him, you should know that in Yitzchak, that will be your legacy. So that's number one. Number two, yeah, if you count sheer numbers, there's a lot more Muslims. But if you know anything about the Torah, the fact that there is just more... You know, they, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's more bio, biological uh, Muslims than there are Jews. But what about the impact? You know, it's so, it's remarkable. I would make the argument in in a heartbeat that the the, the few million Jews uh, that we have in the world outnumber in achievements. Yeah. You know, the the Muslims that are there are hundreds, hundredfold. You know, yeah. for every Jew in the world, there's a hundred Muslims, and I think it's a very easy argument to, make, to be made that the achievements of the Jews in any arena, whatever, of course there are achievements all across the board, but in any arena, uh, you know, any domain you want to look at, I will make that argument and we can look at the numbers. Uh, because, remember, we are designed to do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Abraham tried and was successful to change the world, to fix the world. Thus, we have what's known as the Abrahamic gene within ourselves. The reason why the Jews are so driven and ultimately so successful in so many different uh, areas of, of, of life is because we have what Abraham gave us, an Abrahamic gene. And that kind of motivates us to change the world. And, you know, of course, in some uh, communities, the Jewish people are not necessarily religious at all, Right? Uh, you have people want to change the world in ways that maybe even, uh, maybe even you know, contrary to Torah. Yeah. But the gene is the same gene. What's underlying that motivation? And they have no idea what it is, but it's it's what Abraham implanted within us. And you know, this kind of gives us a very big picture. But you know, if you were to, to sum it up in a few sentences, you would say. Our role as a nation is to achieve to fix the world, to, f- to continue and complete what Abraham began. How do we do that? With Torah. There's 2,000 years of us in our training. And that's just 2,000 years of, of, kind of like insularity. We're just with ourselves. And we're growing and developing and acquiring the skills that we need to change the world. And what's that left Torah? Because Torah embodies and personifies 
that that gives us the power, the capacity, and, and the energy, and the focus, and the understanding that we need to change the world. So we look at Torah, yeah, it's, yeah, of course it's nice, it's study, it's ancient, it's interesting, it's stimulating, it's intriguing. But what we really have is that that, number one, molds us as a nation, which unto itself would be significant, but what we realize that the entire world, everything, every human on the planet, really essentially all the cosmos, it all depends on our nation being successful in completing our mission. We have 6,000 years to do it. Well, we're on our way. It might be crunch time. It might be when we have to cram before the end of the test, right? Who knows? Um, hopefully not. Um, but we, the entire world depends on us. It's a mission that's too vital to, to fail. We can't fail. Imagine we have the world on our shoulders. Almost quite, the, you know, literally, because... If we, if we fail, it's it's disaster, not just for us, for everyone. How do we do that? With the Torah. If, we don't, if the Jews don't perfect the world, is Mashiach still coming? Okay, that's a good question. Because this, this 6,000 years and this Mashiach is coming whether or not we are the cause, the positive cause of his coming. And I'll explain what, that, what I mean. The Talmud, only two pages prior to what, you know, to the 6,000-year idea, the Talmud says is that the Messiah will come in a generation that's either entirely righteous or entirely wicked. And the idea being is that our nation is going to bring Mashiach. That is already established. That is non-negotiable. The destination is finalized. It's clear. However... The path we take to get there is in our hands. We can take the path of entirely righteousness, of the world being perfected by us, or we could choose the path of wickedness and the world being perfected despite of us. Or perhaps we could even say the world perfected because of our wickedness. And by the way, you find a verse in Deuteronomy. Uh, the verse, I think it's, uh, I have it written down somewhere, I think it's 21 or 29. And the verse says like this, a very bizarre string of verses. And it talks about what happens when the Jews abandon Torah. Imagine, we have a mission, we have the guide to our mission. The mission is so vast and so important and so vital and so crucial and so necessary. And we have the guideline, we have the tool book, the Torah. What happens when the Jews abandon the Torah? What happens when we renege upon our responsibility? We drop the ball. What happens then? Well, what, 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 what were to happen? The Torah okay, says, what, what will happen? Huh? We're wicked. We're wicked. And then the Almighty will smite us in, a, in very, very strong terms. He's done it before. Hashem will attach to the plague until it consumes you. Well, there we go. Uh, and then there's a you know there's a very interesting. Twenty one. Um, here we go. So this is twenty nine, twenty three. Well, we'll start with twenty nine, twenty one. I'll read it really quickly here. This is Parshas Nitzavim. So this is the end when Moshe is giving the charge to the people to make sure that they, they behave. And he says like this, uh, what's going to happen when the later generation that comes, and they'll say, um, well, it, it, well, you have to start kind of earlier. 21, you're right. Or 20. Um, well, either way, well, um, mm-hmm. sulfur and salt, burning uh, a burning of all of her land. It's describing just abject disaster that's going to happen. And let's look at this. I want to get to 23 here. And all the nations will say, what is the, why did Hashem do this? Why was Hashem so difficult on this land? Why the flaring of the anger as great as this? And they will say, 
for the reason that they forsook the covenant of Hashem, the God of their forefathers that he established with them when he took them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served the gods, the gods of others. They prostrated themselves to them, gods that they, that they knew them not, nor did he allot them to him. What so f- this is, uh, we're chapter 29. We're now we're up to verse 26. So it's describing uh, uh, the Jewish people being smitten really badly. And then all the nations are going to say, why did the Almighty do this to the people? And they'll answer because they abandoned the covenant. The covenant means, which covenant are we talking about? The covenant the Jewish people accepted. The continuation of Abraham's covenant to bring the world to its perfection. We abandoned that. And the, and the, the Gentiles, they say, oh, they got punished so terribly. Why? Because they left God. So in a weird way, our punishment teaches the entire world about God as well. Both paths bring the world to God. The question is, how? Will it be via our righteousness or via our wickedness? The destination is set. Our choice is how we're going to go about doing that. Uh, and you know, I, I think you know, it just I think it makes sense in, in the light of this to really kind of raise the stature of the Torah. It's not just a wisdom like any other wisdom. Yes, of course, if you were to measure it in a vacuum, it is a great wisdom. And that's, there's nothing wrong with looking at it like that. But if we demote it to being like any other wisdom, we're missing out a little bit of the understanding as to the impact that it's going to have. Torah is what defines us as a nation. And the Torah is the only tool that we have to bring the world to God. We abandon it, we'll still bring the world to God. But it'll be because we abandoned the Torah and we had to suffer the consequences of going back on the pledges that we made. And, you know, Tikkun Olam, we talk about it all the time. And if, unfortunately, this is a little pet peeve of mine, unfortunately, Tikkun Olam itself has been demoted. We talk to young people, but they, they, they hear about it all the time. All the time they talk about Tikkun Olam, and, and what does it mean? Oh, it means to pick up cigarette butts by the by the beach, right? Yeah, yeah, it right. means to go to the to the. Yeah. That's what it means, right? Yeah. Is that what it means? Tikkun Olam, fixing the world. Yeah, yeah picking up cigarette butts yeah. on the beach yeah. is nice. And I'm not trying to say that that's yeah. not nice, but that's not Tikkun Olam. Yeah. That's not six thousand years of the, the whole world. Everything is dependent on this. And unfortunately, our kids are being taught this, and it's a, it's a tremendous uh, malpractice. We're doing education malpractice, if that's what we tell our kids Tikkun Olam means. It's malpractice. There's no other way around it. Tikkun Olam means to fix the world. Litaken olam to fix the world with the kingdom of God. The world is lacking the kingdom of God. Our job, our hope, our yearning, our destiny, is to bring the world to knowing God. That's what it means to fix the world. Don't talk about picking up cigarettes. Of course, it's nice. I'm not saying we should litter. You know, oh, Rabbi Walby gave a lecture and said we should all litter. <laughs> no, of course not. But don't talk about Tihur Olam in, in those terms. I'm not saying you shouldn't go uh, to the Houston Food Bank. and Of course you should do that. But Tihur Olam is big picture. Changing the entire world, fulfilling what Abraham began. That's what Tikkun Olam is. Now has a lot of different religions that believe in gods and try and do good by it, even though it's. And that's fantastic. And by the way, whose legacy is that? It, it's Abraham's. It. A, it's Ab- Abraham is the father of many nations. Yeah. And there's, there's the different flavors of Abraham, but the pure Abrahamic mission is the Jewish people's mission. And we, we don't settle for mediocrity, right? Let's not let's try to... You're like, well, we're good. Yeah, we're good. We're not quite by the finish line. We're close. I think we're in striking distance. We're at the end of a very long process. If you think about it, we did 57 or 50s, almost 58. Out of 60, we're close. Uh, but it's crunch time, right? It's crunch time. Physical. Well, the thing like this, Abraham. Is it then that kind of disseminate the word of God? Or the well, the word of God, God or the word of a deity, the idea of a deity was present in the times of Abraham as well. 
Uh, but the deities were all physical deities. You know, there was no other realm of, of an existence that's beyond physical. Right? It, was all, they, it all had to have a physical representation. The idea of something which is entirely different, a whole different paradigm like than this world, you know, they didn't have that idea. Everything was pagan. And Abraham came and smashed those. You know why? Because those ideas and that thought pattern, you know, that way of, of looking at the world is detrimental. If you only see a physical world, if that's the only realm, the only perspective that you allow to enter into your purview, then you're, you're, you're very much in danger. You're forgetting God. God is invisible. One of the definitions that we give in the Talmud, Brachos 10a, is that the Almighty sees but is unseen. By definition, what Abraham introduced, of course, it was known beforehand, of course. Adam knew it, obviously. But what Abraham introduced on his own was this idea that there is this other realm that's entirely different, not bound by time and space, invisible, you can't see it, not bound by all the rules that we have. You know, even as recently as the Romans and, and, and the, the Greeks, all their pagan gods were petty like we are because they cannot break out of this paradigm that everything has to be kind of humanistic. Everything has to be human-centric. And, and, and totally before the 2,000 years of Mashiach began. And then slowly those ideas get filtered out. There are some still remnants of that, and you would argue, perhaps, that Christianity still has a little flavor of that. that you know, of course, that's the whole debate. Uh, but it's not quite like it was. Remember, Deo Cassius, the Roman historian, talks about the Romans having more than 30,000 gods. 30,000 different gods, you know. Well, but they have the idea of a human representation. That's anathema for us. Well, well, God didn't have any. God can't have any sons. They can't, but they can't. Yeah, but above that is still their God. Well, it's not clear. Let's just, just you know. Well, well. Well, it's very, it's a very murky thing. Yeah, it's not, it's not so clear what they believe. But either way, to give God parts is against. Verses in the Torah, the Almighty is one, doesn't have any parts. To give the idea of God physical representation is anathema to us, uh, is antithetical to the Jewish God, right? But I'm saying, yes, there are remnants of it. It's not entire, it's not like the ancient pagans, of course, uh, but it's not quite, it's not quite, it needs to be tinkered, like the Ramam tells us. So when the time comes, there's going to be more... When the time comes for the Mashiach, the Messianic year to be in, are they going to be more than the Jews? They're going to be the other religions, or everybody will be one religion? I don't think it's a religion. Oh, or one nation. Or one well, nation. so first of all, I, I, I want to just I want to I want to uh, amend what you said because I, I just when the time comes. It's, that kind of removes it from our hands when it comes. It kind of has a set time. Uh, we believe that our actions, our free will choices, they determine when it's going to come. But when you so say it's, our is the Jews, yeah, it's yeah, well, our yes. is everybody. Well, like I said, the world is not complete until everyone has that acceptance. Right? If you look at the prayers that we say in the High Holidays, just read them. And if you've ever done them, I'm sure you've all read them many times, but to read them and kind of understand what is being taught. This is what's being talked about. Everything we spoke about today, big picture, every year we, re- we, re- we revisit this. right? Because this is why we're here. This is the birthday of man, the birthday of God's kingdom, and this is what we want to achieve, that everyone knows the kingdom of God. What about the kingdom, kingdom, kingdom of God? What does that mean? This is what we're talking about. Uh what is the status of non-Jews when Messiah comes? Um, so that's, I think, a, a subject of a, a kind of a scholarly debate. Um, but the idea, the core idea of Mashiach is universal acceptance uh, of, of God, a recognition, and that, you know, that the Jewish people are the, uh, are the harbingers of that or are the ambassadors of that. Um, remember, the, Jew, the Gentiles don't have Torah. They have mitzvahs, but they don't have Torah. Uh, because 
we were the ones by dint of Abraham. It's, you know, chosen nation. We didn't chose a nation. We just picked out of a hat. We won the lottery. No. We were chosen because we happen to be biological descendants of Abraham. And people that choose to opt in as well. That's why we were chosen. We were chosen because Abraham chose. Uh, will the Gentiles become Jews? No. But they could be righteous Gentiles. You can have Gentiles. Remember, the Gentile can have a portion of the world to come. A Gentile can bring about Tikkun Olam as well. It's not their identity as it is our identity. As a Jew, that's our identity. Our identity is that we have to bring Tikkun Olam. You know, and if a Gentile decides that they want it to become their identity, they could choose to join. But we don't have opt-out clauses. You know, we don't have, it's all, it's binding. We, we don't have the ability to renege upon our commitments. Rabbi, I have a question. What, yes. is, what is the thinking then that you said that um, in the time of Mashiach, either, either the Jews will have brought it in as, right, as righteous people or as wicked people. So then the result is going to be different somehow, right? I mean, what is the it's thinking about It's not so that? clear. And the, and the Ramam tells us multiple times, um, and this is, unique because um, as a nation we are obsessed with knowledge right uh, we're obsessed with understanding things with investigating with asking questions with understanding with clarifying and the Ram tells us several times that we don't know what's going to happen when Mashiach comes until it comes we don't know and anyone tells you they do know they don't know and if you do know you probably wouldn't say uh, and he mentioned he reiterates this again and again uh, because, remember, the, the, the mere question of what happens when Mashiach is here is asking about a different world, right? The world that we know of is the world that we're in right now. This is the 6,000-year project. That's what it is, right? We complete that, well, then the 6-year project is over. Well, what happens then? That's Mashiach. Well, okay, what's that world like? Well, that's asking a question beyond the scope of our world, and that's why it's, it, the Ram tells you it's, it's silly to ask, but he does say, uh, you know, it's not like we're talking about some other, you know, are we still on planet Earth or not? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's clear from his position that nothing really changes within the way, you know, the laws of physics remain the way they are. Mm-hmm. So is the okay. building of the third temple? Yes, that's part of, part of Mashiach. That that's part of it. physical Yes, yes. Or is that in the... Yes, how it gets here. built is a question. How it gets, that's my theory, right? Um, how it gets built is, is, a, is a subject of debate, but it's a physical edifice on Temple Mount where within striking distance, like, you know, yeah. we're right there. You know, I think if the Israeli government was not worried about international repercussions, yeah. they yeah. could do it yeah. in overnight. They, they, yeah. they could do it overnight. So yeah. the question is, you know, when's, when's the correct landscape, so to speak, for it? You know, will it happen with us? Will it happen, with, you know, as you know, on the hands of of, of kind of supernatural way? That's all those things are a question. But part of of the development of Mashiach is coming back to Israel. We're already on our way to do that. Yeah. Uh, on the Temple and, Mount is that the Temple Mount? Where yes, they, that's the same Temple the, Mount. The Western Wall is and the 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 yeah. the Muslim yeah. well, yeah. Temple. Well, the, well, okay, um, the Western Wall. Is a retaining wall. Yeah. When you build a plateau, you have to build retaining walls all right, around it. Right. So the western wall is one of the remaining retaining walls for the uh, for the plateau on which what's called Temple Mount. Okay. Now it was bigger in yesteryear. It was taller as well. It was a mountain. Um, over the time, over history, especially in the 130s, Hadrian raised the mountain using yeah. Jewish slave labor. So it didn't look exactly the way, it, it, the way it does today. But in 691, the Muslims built the shrine called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and, by the way, as a side note... And when was that? Uh, 691. 691. Uh, as a side note, my theory is that this is the Almighty's way of ensuring that it's kind of protected until it's ready. Because, unfortunately, the Muslims will do a better job in preserving it in its purity, in its, in its holiness, uh, in its sanctity, than it would be if it was a terror site for Jews to come. It was under, uh, under Israeli uh, kind of uh, oversight. Uh, you don't want to see people taking selfies in Temple Mount, right? 
that would be inappropriate. Have they rebuilt the temple? The, the dome would stay. Yeah, well, the, well, the, dome, the well, no, dome will be moved, um, uh, but it would, it would, it would. We look at it. I look at it at least as, you know, as kind of a just. Remember, that's not a mosque, by the way. That's just a shrine. It's just, it's just a protection of an ancient site. Uh, whenever it's ready to be revealed once again, just remove it. Where's the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Al-Aqsa Mosque is further south. So if you know, if you ever take a picture of Temple Mount, you'll see two domes, one of them gold, yeah. one of them kind of blackish, like stone. The gold one was because King Hussein sold one of his houses in London and he used the proceeds to buy 80 kilos of gold. So if you look at old pictures of Temple Mount, that wasn't always gold. I'm not worried about the Muslims letting it go. Well, I mean, well, they're they're not you know what? If they were worried about what Muslims wanted, they wouldn't have the state of Israel to begin with. Okay, so the question is when the right time to build it is. So do you really, don't you think it's a real optimistic view, though, that 0.2% of the world can change the views of 99.8% of the Well, we don't, need to change the, we don't need to change the views. Well, we have to perfect them. We, they have to be righteous. Okay, but, uh, you know, there's going to be, uh, we, we, we don't know, who, like we said, we don't know, we cannot try to telegraph how it's going to happen. We don't We can't. Know. We have no idea how it's going to happen. Uh, but it will it's happen. Well, yeah, well, a lot of things would, would be optimistic. The, 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 the state of Israel and the way it is today yeah, is very optimistic. Yeah. If I told you about it 100 years ago. Well, the point, the point is like this. The well, the point is like this. This is a prophecy in the Torah, and the Torah has a stellar, impeccable record yeah. in, yeah. in accuracy. Yeah. So how right. exactly it's going to work, we don't know. And anyone tells you they do know, they're lying. Yeah. We don't know how it's going to happen. Even though we can kind of, in our own minds, we can make out kind of plausible scenarios how it could happen. You know, how does the entire world know overnight that it happens? That's a question I'm sure someone would have asked 500 years ago. You know, you want to, if you're in England, it might take you a decade to find out what's happening in India, right? Yeah. How would you know? Yeah. Now, we have this idea of the world knowing everything. I don't know. Is it possible that it could be on the Internet? Yeah. It could be on Twitter and everyone will know about it instantly. Yeah. I don't know. It's, you know, not my grandfather used to say, it. this is my grandfather, this is a quote from my grandfather, this is not me. He said that the idea when Mashiach comes, it will be on the radio. Now, that was obviously the medium of his time. Yeah. But I would try to change. I'm saying, I think it's possible. Be it'll be everywhere yeah. instantly. instantly. Right. And we, we're going to live in a world very soon where 80, 90% of the world will have smartphones. Is it possible that everyone will find out within a day? Yeah, it's likely. Yeah, it's, likely. It's, it's, it's not crazy, right? So, like, that's also taking shape. Okay, we have a few more minutes. But, the, but, but I think, like, this introduction of this idea really shows us what Torah is and what kind of stakes we're playing with, you know? This is not kids' play. This is not some nice thing we teach our kids. Yeah, like, yeah of course it's nice. Of course you teach your kids. But this is fundamental this, yeah, this is defining to us as individuals and as a nation. As a Jew, we cannot shirk from our responsibilities. We can't say, well, well I'm not that active. Of, well, no, like that's what you are as a Jew. You are someone who is responsible for the entire world. You're a descendant of Abraham. You have Torah that gives you uncapped capability to change the world. Torah is more than just wisdom. It's, more, it's, it's everything. And this brings us into the next reason why we study Torah. And I think in light of what we just learned, what we're about to learn will make a lot of sense. And that is that the, Torah, the Talmud says very clearly that the reason why the Bible created the world was for Torah. Well, in our current understanding, it makes a lot of sense. If the world was here, it's a project 6,000 years of trying to achieve perfection, and the Torah is the only way we got to do that, well, of course, the world was created for Torah. Well, what happens when the Jews abandon Torah? Says the Talmud, if the Jew abandons Torah, even momentarily, there's no one studying Torah in the world, the world gets destroyed. And in ancient times, ancient times in, in recent history, there are yeshivas, especially Volajan, Volajan, the mother of all yeshivas, that they had... A rotation, 24-7, 367, always. For years and years and years, there's always 
people studying Torah because the world depends on it. For one second, there were to be a cessation of Torah. Nowhere, nowhere is your study in Torah. The world is... Now why? If the world abandons its purpose, it loses its purpose. If the entire world says, you know what? This whole world, we're not interested. There's no one studying Torah. First, imagine. Thank God it hasn't happened. But imagine it did happen. There's no one studying Torah. What does that mean? It means that humanity in mass have agreed that the world is not worth it. Okay, then the world's destroyed. You don't want it? I'll take it away, says the Almighty. If we abandon Torah, we're essentially abandoning the world. And you want to abandon the world? Okay, you want to abandon. What's going to happen? You'll abandon it. Okay, fine, I'll take it back. You know, the recent sages, you know, I read a story about my namesake. My namesake was a famous uh, leader, Jewish leader, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, if you heard that name. Uh, there, his, his descendants, his children, his grandchildren are, are great Torah leaders in the United States and in Israel, in Canada, I think. And he had a practice every year. Every year after Yom Kippur, he would study for two hours before he had a breakfast meal. And the reason why is he, his rationale for this was because there's a lull in Torah study at that time because people are eating, right? People are kind of, they're, they're worn, they're shaken, they're tired. You know, the, it's very hard to study right after Yom Kippur. So there's, the world's a danger. At this time, more than ever, we have to have people that accept upon themselves responsibility for the world. But... I've done the rotation of the sun around our planet helped out a little bit because it's morning here and it's night there. Yes, yeah, so I once theorized that. If, if, yeah, if, if it's, it helps that, the, you know, that... But, but really, like, this is why we study Torah. If you think about it, in this one, we're saving the world. We're saving the world quite literally because if we didn't do it, you know, if there was no one doing it, well, then the world is in peril and it's going to be destroyed. It will be destroyed. That means it's very clear. The verse says, If not for my covenant of day and night, the rules, the laws of heaven and earth, I will not place. The Almighty says, If you don't study Torah, the world doesn't continue. It doesn't operate. No more. Bye-bye. We want to opt out? We can opt out. What happens? And the Almighty says, okay, you want to opt out? I'm pulling back my commitments as well. That's on one side of the coin. But if you flip the other side of the coin, imagine you are studying Torah. What are you doing? You're saving the world quite literally from destruction. You're contributing towards the effort of fixing the world and of staving off absolute disaster, absolute destruction. So, you know, what, what should that make us feel like when we're studying Torah? What does that make us feel? Good. Fantastic. It's, it's not just study. Everything, the continuity, the existence of the world depends upon it. And I, I, my hope is that, you know, is that, you know, we, we take these lessons. You know, we're, we're spending, this is our ninth week doing this. And, you know, we learn a lot about Torah, and it's very meaningful, hopefully. It's meaningful for me to, to, to you know, to go through this. Uh, but I, I, my hope is, is that we actually integrate these ideas in, into our life. We take the time to, to study more Torah, to, to have a higher appreciation for our Torah. For our Torah scholars, by the way, the Talmud uh, says, also in Sanhedrin, within that same uh, couple of pages, people who say, quote, what do the rabbis do for me? You know, you see this online. They talk about, uh, there's, a, there's a fascination amongst journalists to talk about the Haredim in Israel. All they do is study Torah. They don't work. They don't go to the army. They don't shower. Right? All, that, all those things are not true, by the way. But, you know, that's what they like to say. Uh, when, and the Talmud says, people like that, they lose their portion of the world to come. People who criticize. Yes. People who say that. Uh-huh. And why? What they don't realize is that the world only exists because of those Bearded Haredim. That's the only reason why it exists. That's it. That's the only reason. That's it. So all those, you know, uh, sanctimonious journalists, 
that are writing that don't realize the only reason why they're alive and their children are alive and the world that they know and their, their job in this universe is, is in existence is because of those people studying Torah. You know what? And by the way, side point, I know this is, I don't want to go too far over time here, but in the whole kind of debate as to whether or not those people should go to the army, should not go to the army, how to right? This is the reason why, this is the argument at least of the people, of the proponents of exemptions for yeshiva students. This is it. Because they are indeed saving as much, if not more, as the people that are actually in battle. Yes, Susie. What I was going to say is, when Dave and I were in another class a couple of years ago, and we studied Rabbi Luzato's The Way of God, he says in that book that also by, by those folks that study Torah all the time in the yeshivas, they're also sp- spiritually uplifting the rest of the Jews oh, that yeah. don't bother to do mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know that in, um, in, in 2006, there was a 34-day war in Lebanon. I guess that's, that's, it's coming up in 10 years ago. And uh, they started sending... Well, what happened was is that they, they kidnapped two soldiers, but really they killed them. And it was years and years later... Uh, no, Shalit was in, is in Gaza with Hamas. It was two guys. One guy's name was... Um, his name was uh, Gold... What was his name? Goldwasser. The other one's name escapes me. Uh, either way, those two people were killed in action. But it kicked off a, a war in the summer of 2006. And if you remember, there all the people living in northern Israel... They all left because they were shooting these rockets. These rockets were, you know, just exploding buildings. So I remember it was, it was, you know, it was the end of the summer, the end of the summer semester in the yeshiva, and everyone takes vacation, right? Three weeks of vacation. You're looking forward to vacation, right? Uh, but when you have the understanding that the world is depending upon you, and all the more so in a time of war, you can't leave your post. You know, if you're a soldier... And you're a soldier, and you're like, oh, well, I have vacation, right? I have a week vacation. Yeah. But the war breaks out, your vacation is scrapped. Yep. So we scrapped our vacation. You had 6,000 students, and they continued studying. Because we felt, to a certain extent, we knew, even if we didn't feel it, but it was true, that we too were on the battlefield. We too were on the front lines. Our actions really impacted what's going to be with people, Jewish people, with the, with the state of Israel, with the world. And this understanding is critical for us. Because it augments the role of Torah in our life, it it augments it in the in, you know in, in the uh, in the value of of what it means to be Jewish, and ultimately, it's the only tool we've got to change the world. I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow.